Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey friend, I'm Nadia Okamoto, host of the Tigress Podcast, and I'm so excited for you to join me on this journey of this unfiltered, unapologetic diary of basically being a work in progress. There's kind of this 2022 resolution that I'm creating for myself of really exploring my own body and exploring what I like, because I don't think I've ever allowed myself the opportunity to explore. You can find Tigris on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are streamed. I narrowly survived the toddler to train wreck pipeline. There's a lack of resources and, and preparation for families dabbling in the entertainment industry. You can't really dabble. Nothing was designed for me to end up normal, stable, alive. Mothers DMing me every day saying, my daughter was just subjected to this situation on set. Help me. Let me make sure I'm not just being driven by my trauma when I go out and serve. Why do that? Why not just tell the story and leave it at that? Why make it a mission? Hello, everyone. I'm Aisha Sasei, and welcome back to The Accidental Activist, the show where we discover the sparks that ignite people's passion to change the world. My guest this week is Alison Stoner. As the star of many movies that filled countless childhoods, you most likely remember her as a wildly successful child movie star, or from being in Missy Elliott's iconic Work It music video. As singer, dancer, and actor, Alison is widely regarded as a triple threat, the consummate performer, but in truth, she is so much more. The experience of growing up in the entertainment industry was a difficult and painful one for her, and it ultimately required years of healing. Now, Alison is using her transformative journey to help others. These days, she's using her platform to fight for improved mental health resources and better support systems for artists and entertainers, especially the young ones. I got to experience a small part of Alison's activism in the form of a short breathing and visualization session that she invited me and my producers to participate in before our conversation got underway. It was a window into her new role as a teacher and facilitator for healing. Before we dive into this discussion, I do want to give a trigger warning for eating disorders. If you're sensitive to this content, please feel free to fast forward or simply join us again for next week's episode. With that said, I hope this conversation leaves you with the same sense of positivity and empowerment that I was left with after spending time with Alison. Welcome to the Accidental Activist, Alison. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for that moment. I don't think I've ever had a guest who's come on the show and kind of 
led me with breath work before the conversation. <laughs> oh, it's it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And also, to be fair, I needed it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was so interesting because as we 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 did that that minute of visualization and breath work, and you were asking us, myself and my producers, to be centered into our bodies. You know, again, I tried to be present, but it just made me realize how much of a disconnect there is for so many between our mind and bodies. Yes. I mean, also with our schedule going from task to task, it's hard to maintain perfect presence. You know, there is a natural pendulum and that's to be expected. And also in overwhelming moments, if we're in a stressful state the rest of our day, we might even numb out or dissociate. And so there's no judgment there, but having those mindful moments, my sister and I, who's my co-founder, we do these before each meeting. And it just gives us an opportunity to come back into the present and be aware of what I'm bringing to this conversation. So I really didn't want to bring the stress and carry it. So I kind of just wanted to discharge a little bit of it, reset. And then now, you know, we can reconnect on a little bit more human level. See, I, I find it so interesting because when I was reading about your childhood and you are a multi-hyphenate in the true sense, uh, you know, an actor, a singer, a dancer, you write, you direct, you produce, you've done a whole load of things and you were a child star. And, and it makes me wonder, trying to be mindful or present as a child star seems like an impossibility. It's so ironic that you're teaching this now because I'd imagine you had a childhood where being present was very hard. You are quite perceptive. So ironically, as a performer, you actually do want to cultivate the skill of being hyper-present and emotionally available and able to access whatever the character you're portraying requires. And also an active listener with the person in front of you. So there were positives, but logistically, the pace, the cadence of everyday life auditioning and running to a press junket and then walking outside and having to be very self-conscious about your own safety if someone is staring or taking photos of you or perhaps following you home. It really kept me hypervigilant and my mind was racing, but I wasn't mindful in a way that was productive or helpful to my nervous system. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, you know, I think one of the very reasons I'm now getting the certifications, teaching, and I have my company, Movement Genius, is because this was my greatest undertaking personally, and it transformed my quality of life. And it is allowing me now to actually get out and serve in the way that I want to without being super overwhelmed by my own experience. Sure, sure. Let's talk about your journey to the spotlight. You started when you were so young, you were about six when you, you started, you know, the dancing, the performing. Was that your idea? <laughs> well, I'm actually going to flip this question on you. <laughs> if, if I was your daughter and I, or if your daughter came to you at three years old and said, I want to dance. And then at six said, I want to go to this convention, even if it was her idea does that automatically mean we it's should do it? a good one it? or you should do it. <laughs> That's a good flip. So, you know, I want to give my parents a lot of credit here. We truly did our best with what we knew, but there's a lack of resources and, and preparation for families 
dabbling in the entertainment industry. You can't really dabble. You're either committed and you're on the hamster wheel running around the city, or you have to accept that there's a strong chance you may not ever book a role or develop an actual career, at least at that, that point. So I went to a convention at six years old, and I did have a lot of positive feedback about my performance skills. They recommended we try it out in LA. I'm originally from Ohio. And we went out there for a trial period. And fortunately slash unfortunately, depending on how you view it, I experienced a lot of beginner's luck. And I booked jobs very early on. And I pretty much never stopped working because some of the early jobs were massive productions and things that created momentum right away. Now in the industry, of course, if you've got some wind underneath your wings, there is such a fear that you will lose it. So you got to keep going and going and going. But what I was doing at seven years old was maintaining a schedule that is very chaotic. It's hard to grasp because I have no other understanding of reality besides this. This is my first glimpse at what the real world is like. And I'm seven years old maintaining an adult work schedule, adult relationships, adult responsibilities, and maybe thinking about things through a very different lens than the average child. So super grateful. We really, we, we rocked hard for a long time, but there was a cumulative impact on my mind and body. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very lucky and privileged that I had access to therapy and support. Otherwise, as many of my peers are experiencing, it can really take a toll. Absolutely. And I think it is the sometimes in the telling of the story of young people who have these moments or, or lifetimes in the entertainment industry without the other side, the balance, people just don't understand what they're getting into. They don't even know what they're looking at, right? And this country is so obsessed with child stars. And I often wonder why that is. I mean, what do you make of that? Did you watch the Britney documentary? I did see the Britney documentary. It was tough to watch. So I paused a few times, shed some tears. It hits home. I would never compare any of our experiences because they really are so unique. But it's such a niche group of people who experience Absolutely. this kind of life. <laughs> And we do such a great job societally at creating the illusion of separation, whether it's the hierarchy of stars being more important, or it's the diva persona where you expect someone to be a bad human and therefore it doesn't matter if things happen to them. So it makes it easier to kind of dehumanize. They kind or, of deserve it type of narrative. Yeah. And then also there's the jealousy aspect because we're in this super competition driven, individualistic, exceptionalism, you know, driven society. So there's room for animosity and just a sense of, eh, you're not really worth my sympathy or empathy. Now, I totally get that. Like, I totally get why it would be hard to see someone apparently thriving with money, with fame, success, and then be like, Oh, I wonder how their heart is doing right now. So I'm not, I'm not really asking for that understanding even. What I'm asking for is a chance to revisit how we even look at media and the fact that the audience is actually participating in creating this 
ecosystem as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't want people to be taken advantage of while they're watching movies unknowingly. Yes. You know, by, by you watching a film where I'm a child and something really bad has happened to me. If you're watching that, yes, it's kind of directly slash indirectly supporting that kind of material being made, which did have an impact on my health. However, you are also being affected by the imagery and by the messages in the movie, and it's influencing your behavior and desensitizing you to certain certain issues. So I want to kind of elevate the conversation to where everyone, everyone's voice is heard. And we just approach this more from an ethical, human well-being centered mindset. But like, we could probably stand to do that in every industry. Yeah, I was going to say, because what you're saying is something that has been extended to conversations around violence being depicted in gaming and how it impacts young people and shapes. And as you said, desensitizes people or, you know, from violence to pornography, sexual pornography. People have these conversations about what you see on screen and how it impacts those who, who are receiving um, the images and the messages. When did you realize all of this, all of these experiences were impacting you, were taking a toll on you physically and emotionally? Well, it was easy to see the physical symptoms. I found myself in this obsessive eating disorder behavior. And I, as a kid, wanting to just be the best employee and the hardest worker or student ever, I didn't want to be preoccupied with these obsessive thoughts that I couldn't seem to control. So, you know, over the course of a couple of years, I was suddenly journaling every morsel of food I I consumed, tallying all of the calories, putting myself on a treadmill for umpteen miles a day on top of the dance rehearsals and whatnot. And I... I started seeing hair loss and my skin was sallow. And I later on in life had this sort of adrenal fatigue from touring and not ever replenishing enough and had stress-induced seizures. So I had a lot of physical symptoms. However, interestingly, I also was so disconnected from my body that I wouldn't have been able to really tell you, oh, maybe something's off. I didn't know anything. But what about everyone around you? I mean, that's, that's the thing. When I've watched you speak about this, you know, when you, you wrote your piece from Toddler to Trainwork, that pipeline that you wrote the op-ed about, the whole time I kept thinking, where were your parents and guardians? Yeah, I, I hear you. And I want to walk a fine line of being respectful to my mom, who was with me through so much and sacrificed so much and also speak a part of my truth. I don't know that the average parent is equipped to understand what is going on in an audition room. She made a lot of decisions to protect me. I promise you, when we were on sets, if things were inappropriate or they were trying to get me to work 25 hours a day, she did try to protect me. There are so many subtle ways that you are not only disempowered in a situation, but also the sense of responsibility is so decentralized. So no single person feels it's on them to step in and support the child. Mind you, as a society, how many of us are even equipped to understand lasting psychological impact of one, reenacting trauma 
as a four-year-old and two, behaving in that kind of lifestyle growing up and having no other reference point of stability, secure attachment, grounding, the basics that we need for, for healthy, adaptive kinds of behaviors. Like the average person doesn't have a master's degree in this. So I really feel that my parents did their best. And I, I was not one of the kids who was forced to continue. My mom would regularly say, hey, if this is too much, if you need a break, we can take a break. But there are so many other forces, especially in my particular position. I was booking these huge once in a lifetime projects where you kind of go, okay, I'm a little tired, but I'm also eight and sprightly and full of life and vigor. Sure. And this is awesome. So yeah, I want to fly to Miami and perform with Missy Elliott at MTV Spring Break. Which, mind you, by the way, Missy did a great job at giving us as an appropriate as of a, mm -hmm. an experience as possible. <laughs> um, we That's were good still to subjected, hear. yeah, subjected to a lot, but she's awesome. But on set, for example, there are teachers who are designated welfare workers. There's also standards and practices. They're supposed to show up and make sure things are gravy. In reality, productions move so quickly. You've got to hit the deadline. We're on a budget, blah, 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 that all of these exceptions get made over and over and over. The teachers themselves also are supposed to try to support this kid flipping in and out of character who needs to get some real schoolwork done, but also needs to remember their lines, might be having a stressed out day and can't really do their job well unless they get a break. Like it's, it's not a recipe for success for anyone. If someone made it out swimmingly, I would be like, what, what like set of special equipment did you get? Cause I don't think, I don't really think anyone at that age, especially can get out unscathed. And you, you've talked about this, the changes that need to, to happen. These third party individuals who act purely in the interests of the child and how we need to look at child labor laws. Before we go to, to, too far, you, you had said that it was clear to see your physical, the physical impacts, but the emotional, mental impacts. How old were you when you started to realize that things weren't working the way they should? I, I don't even know that. Just so you were in a state of anxiety. Well, yes. And I did not have the name anxiety or depression at that time. I would also say I was socially so awkward. You know, put me in a room. 12 men with suits, and I'll run the show. Put me on a playground next to someone my age, which on the outside listening might be like, oh, that's kind of funny, haha. <laughs> but truly as a child, feeling like young people are terrifying and I don't know how to connect. We have different interests. I don't even know who I am outside of the characters I play. I'm also trained at an early age in the audition room to win whoever I'm around. So I'm really great at being on. But it doesn't mean that I feel safe to be an authentic self who can crack sometimes and break sometimes, especially if y'all are going to go talk about me and spread a, you know, a rumor or post about it, not post pre, more pre a modern <laughs> term, but, you know, to release gossip a little about article. Yeah. Totally. And people do. And so I think socially, I also felt really 
estranged from others. And, you know, mentally and emotionally, I think it was honestly the eating disorder. It got so intense that I needed to, I chose to go to professional treatment. And it was there that the therapist kind of helped me thaw very slowly. It took years. It took years. But very slowly come into my body in a way that felt safe. And it's not, it's anyone who's been through anything similar. It's not an easy recovery. Um, but had that not been a glaring issue in my life, I might never have reconnected with myself. I might just be kind of continuing on that path of achievement, of success, and of like the outward shell looking really, really fine. You've chosen to talk about all of this, the impacts on your physical and mental well-being the industry at large, and you know, as you talk about the lack of advocates for children in the entertainment industry, what kind of reception have you received from, let's start with just your family? I had a lot of extended family reach out and say, we had no idea and we're so sorry um, because they really only got the highlight reel. I only went back for holidays and you know, if I had a movie in theaters, we'd go see the movie together. And, and that's, that's the perfect image. Hey, it's going great in LA. So I had a lot of extended family recognize some of the complexity. My immediate family was glad to see me embracing my story more fully because notoriously I've chosen the path to really focus on the positive publicly. And I, and I stand by that. But, you know, I want to also be sensitive. Every single one of my family members was drastically affected in this as well. By your experiences specifically or because you have siblings? I have two sisters. I, you know, do have additional family, but mainly grew up with two sisters. And yes, I mean, they were, they were picked up from Ohio and flown out to California to start a new life because baby sister right. happened to book a, a job. And I didn't, I didn't sense any resentment from them ever, though it would have been fully warranted and maybe it's deep down and, and they resolved it separately. But I will say we all felt like islands to me. Right. We just kind of were our own self-governing. We got to be self-sufficient and figure it out. And I didn't really feel that sense of glue. Now, decades later, we're getting to know each other and it's, it's really healing, but it's so hard to explain in a single conversation the wedges that are created. Even if you think purely on finances, you've got a, a, the youngest person in the family now bringing in money, whether or not I actually see that money because teams and other people right. love to get their hands in it. Um, and I did, I experienced a lot of unfortunate stories in that regard, but what would that be like to, to be a, a middle sister or an older sister who just wants to start their own life, but doesn't have that inherent advantage? Like, where do I go? Okay. I'm going to go get a minimum wage job or I'm going to mow some lawns. You know, there's, there's yeah, so absolutely. much there. We're full humans. Listening to Alison describe a childhood of endless overwork and its cumulative impact on her body and mind was distressing. 
It gave me a different perspective on the enormously negative impact that show business has had on most child stars, many of whom we've watched over the years struggle to gain control of their lives. Alison's brutal honesty about the toll of her experiences and the impact on her life continues to bring much-needed light to this dark subject matter, which sadly, more often than not, only seems to receive public attention when we're witnessing another former child star caught up in a downward spiral. Hearing her speak so candidly about her trauma reminded me of my conversation with Dr. Lucy Kalanithi in an earlier episode from the season. Both Alison and Lucy are repurposing their trauma and using it to fuel their activism. I've said this before, pain or grief-fueled activism is emotionally difficult and repeatedly revisiting one's trauma is potentially emotionally treacherous work. But when you hear Alison describe how wounded she was by the industry, you realize that the stakes are too high to not speak out and fight to change the way the business currently operates. Tapping into personal pain or grief to drive change is not for every activist. But when I think about it, on some level, we are all leaning into emotion to propel our efforts, be it outrage, fear, love, or empathy. But doing so requires that we all mindfully manage those emotions so they remain a source of help rather than a hindrance to our efforts. We'll be right back after a very quick break. The Accidental Activist podcast is exclusively sponsored by Mercedes-Benz. Throughout this season, I've talked to a lot of women fighting for change, inspiring others to see a better path forward. So I wanted to tell you about another woman who was driven by a singular desire to challenge societal norms and change the world. Her name is Bertha Benz. And back in 1888, when her husband, Carl Benz, didn't think his motor car invention was ready, Bertha decided to take matters into her own hands. Getting behind the wheel, she embarked on a road trip to introduce the world to the first ever automobile. Conditions weren't great. She even pushed the vehicle herself when it ran out of fuel. But she knew people needed to see this technological advancement to believe it, and she was right. Bertha's vision and courage revolutionized the automotive industry and sparked the beginning of the Mercedes-Benz legacy. You know I wish I could invite Bertha on this show because I think the way she lived her life was as an activist, whether she knew it or not. So hats off to you, Bertha, and your spirit lives on as Mercedes-Benz continues to be a proud supporter of those who take action and drive change. Welcome back to the show, everyone, and part two of my conversation with former child star Alison Stoner. These days, Alison is using her experiences in the business to spur on efforts to reform the way the industry treats entertainers, especially its youngest stars. In this second half of the discussion, we're getting to grips with exactly what she's fighting for and the potential risks that come with being a voice for issues of mental health and well-being. Also, listen out for how she responds when I ask her whether she would call herself an activist. Throughout the season, my guests have given personal and insightful responses to that question. 
And I think every occasion is an opportunity for each of us to check in with ourselves and reflect on our relationship with the work and the label. In telling your story or in experiences, you've decided not just to talk about it, but to intentionally use it and become an advocate for mental health and mental wellness. Why do that? Why not just tell the story and leave it at that? Why make it a mission? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't, I don't expect other people to have this same perspective. But for me, I can heal on my own without needing to tell the public that I've healed. I can develop the rest of my humanity outside of the industry and let it go if I really want to. The reason I share it and turn it into a mission is because there are mothers DMing me every day saying, my daughter was just subjected to this situation on set. Help me. And they don't know what to do. And no one, no one is really coming forward and telling the story with practical solutions. Like, don't get me fired up. But if I just keep telling you about how hard my life was, then that's more for me. I'm not saying this is what other people's motivation is. But for me, if I did that, I would just be trying to get more attention on myself and using it as a PR stunt to amplify my career even further. No, 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 no. There are millions of people, and we'll start with kids because people are more likely to care about a child suffering than maybe adults where they say, you should figure it out and handle it. But really everyone on set and not just in set, it's, it's the whole ecosystem. It's the agents, the managers. It's everyone in every industry. It's all of us in our day-to-day lives being able to say, systemically, there is current infrastructure that can be changed because guess what? At one point it was designed, so it means that stuff can be deconstructed and reconfigured. We are creative beings. We can do better. Yeah. So knowing that people are struggling and suffering and that this is what I know, so I might as well use it for something purposeful. The layer for me, though, that's important is let me make sure I'm not just being driven by my trauma when I go out and serve. Because that will, from, in my experience, kind of lead to certain flare-ups or biases And it kind of gets in the way of having a more objective approach where you can go, all right, that was my thing. Sometimes it's still hard to think about, but let's look at the situation as broadly as possible. What are the needs of each person and how can we address them as mindfully and ethically as we can? Doing this kind of work and speaking about mental trauma, um, about wellness and, and a path to healing, do you worry that while you're trying to do something good, it keeps a tag of stigma attached to you? Ooh, um, that is, that's a, that's a badge that I'm willing to wear if it means that someone else is going to Because people are having, you, as you know, and you've talked about this, the stigma around admitting any kind of lack of mental wholeness, even though we're all struggling with it at various points in different shapes, shades, degrees, and levels of intensity admitting it is another thing. And so the fact that you admit it and you talk about it and you've made it a mission in an industry, particularly that seems to value the appearance of perfection. Do you think about that? I I think I I made peace with that a while ago. Well, one, everyone's going to perceive you how they perceive you anyway. 
So my whole life, even at my, at my moment of personal greatest accomplishment, people saw it as a failure. And in moments of failure, others came in and said, you're still worthy. So everyone's going to be projecting onto me their consciousness and their understanding of who I am and the role I, I play in their lives. So that's just something I have to accept. But then also, yes, there will be stigma accompanied by me coming forward with this, but it's important that we normalize all facets of our humanity instead of putting it through that filter of, you know, let's call it a puritanical, you know, certain kind of moral lens where we shun and shame and villainize the parts of ourselves that are only later going to come up and cause havoc symptomatically, relationally, societally. So for me, healing is at the core of all of this. My allegiance, if to anyone, is to healing, wholeness, love, compassion, growth. And if that means that people are going to see me as wild or crazy along the way, I have to accept that. I will say, though, <laughs> I feel that I have a slight advantage, and that's why I'm willing to come forward. I have a very relatively, relatively, I'll say, clean track record and reputation of people knowing that I'm a reliable employee. I aim to be positive and interactive with fans and whatnot. So I don't have a lot of moments in the tabloids where people have discredited my mind and my body and my being the way many of my peers do. Therefore, in some ways, I want to step forward and advocate for them because I think more people will listen to me because I come across as being slightly more put together mm -hmm. or socially acceptable. So that does mean that I have to monitor myself a little bit more, but I'm willing to do that if it moves the needle and it opens more minds and hearts. And specifically in this area, have you set yourself goals? Like, do you know what is you're working towards as you do this work? Yes, there are several concrete goals some of which I probably won't be leading or participating in, but would love to support others in taking the lead on. Goals include, I'm designing currently mental health toolkits with a professor and a couple of experts in the mind-body space that would specifically help artists and families create personalized plans for how to approach different industry experiences and processes. That's a concrete goal. How quickly is it happening? on top of running a company and so many <laughs> other things, you know, we're trying to take it one day at a time. But that is a goal. Another goal is to get child labor laws in all 50 states. I am not the policy queen. That is not me. But if one day our paths intersect and I'm needing to speak before Congress on something, yeah, I will do that. So I'm, I'm trying to really hone in on what my position is. And frankly, Given that I'm used to being in the public eye, much of my advocacy will be potentially being a mouthpiece for a cause and a movement. Now, long term, I'm eager to distribute this voice and I'm trying to set up conversations, another concrete goal, with folks who have very different identities, backgrounds, and experiences in the industry so that we're not just looking at it through a white, lean non-disabled female actress. Right. Um, and there are, a, uh, there are a lot of us. <laughs> there are a lot of us. So. Yes, there are, Alison. There are. But <laughs> you, alongside this, as if that weren't, you know, a life's work, 
you also use your voice to talk around issues of sexuality and identity. And you came out in a Teen Vogue article as queer and saying, this is who I am. And basically deal with it, you know, and really use that again as a moment. And you've used a lot of your life as a moment for people to sit and just really, I always, when I was looking into your actions and your work and just how you carry yourself, almost just like as a teachable moment, as an, as an invitation for people to expand their hearts. There's a few reasons for that. And thank you for, for noticing that. That is an aspiration. It's an aim to first and foremost, learn the lesson for myself and let it shape me, but then also make it available to others. I think when I read books that say, follow this protocol, that may help practically speaking, but there does seem to be an easier entry point for conversation when someone's willing to say, this was my personal journey through this. And it comes across maybe less judgmental, less dogmatic. So you're able to really infuse some insights where people almost feel like they're watching a movie and they can go, oh, I relate to that character as opposed to stop telling me what to do. (laughs) Stop telling me how I need to live my life. So I think by extension of my early experience, I learned sort of that form of storytelling. And if I'm going to be maintaining some kind of public figure platform, you know, strange, but if I'm going to do that, how can this be a value add to others? Otherwise, when I tell you, I'll just become a conceited, self-absorbed, like big-headed bozo. Uh, we don't need we don't need that. So <laughs> there are lots of those around. We don't need any more. Well, you know, and we and I have and I have compassion for everyone. <laughs> I mean, we love our bozos, but there's some bozos. We can call them that. Those that are in that space. I feel very responsible. I feel very, very accountable to what I create and put out in the world. I just always have. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Oh, I, I don't know that I would claim that title because I, I think of my friends who are lifelong career activists. And I would say philosophically, my frame of view lends itself to activism and probably a contemplative Mm -hmm. form of activism. Which is more advocacy, some people might say. Advocacy is the more contemplative, whereas activism, some people see it as a more active leaning in. Mobilization. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I think I might be stepping into a season of more activism because I'm taking deliberate strides toward a goal and I'm mobilizing people, I'm organizing, and I'm, you know, disseminating information as best as I humanly can. But as a lifelong practice, I will hopefully at least always be advocacy minded. Once you know, you would have to deliberately ignore and turn off the information you've been presented and witnessed. And when you watch loved ones, friends, someone on the news go through something, if you allow yourself to open your heart just enough to actually empathize, it's tough. It's tough to to turn away. I also want to say though, there are so many causes that are worthy of our attention and time. I, 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 can't, I can't be an activist in all areas. No one can. 
And I fall short in so many ways still, so many ways. But all that to say, I think activism is such a easy word to dilute when it's overused. Do you think it is? Do you think it's overused now? Well, it depends on who's saying it <laughs> and the context and the connotation. I would say when you see when you see the word in mainstream media, by the time anything has hit mainstream media, there's probably some sense of dilution. That's the the nature of spreading information to mass audiences and putting it through layers and layers and layers of legal approval and, you know, all of that, that, that we don't think about when we're just watching and pressing play. People your age, you're in your late twenties now may hear this conversation and think to themselves, you know, I want to, I want to get involved. It's something that I'm interested in, but eh, you know, where to start, where to, this just seems really hard or, or I think a concern a lot of people have is this just seems really heavy. And how do I do it without it impacting my spirit? (laughs) What do you say as a wise soul in that 28 year old body that's lived a thousand lifetimes? I mean, you said that your career spiked at 11 and that just freaked me out completely. Oh, oh, you, you really, you setting me up here for some, (laughs) (laughs) okay, I'll tell you my experience. I'll tell you through a separate parallel story. Every time, you know, driving around LA from stop to stop, almost everywhere, there's someone who's experiencing homelessness, who has a sign asking for basic supplies. Now, Philosophically set all of the things aside, like whether or not we should or shouldn't or what, you know, what to give and all of that. Knowing that I have encountered thousands of people in my lifetime and I have either turned away or pretended I didn't have anything or didn't have anything on hand at a certain point. That was totally on. I mean, it's always been on me, but it's on me to go, Okay, I have no excuse to not go create a little basket fill it with some of these products, have them on hand and roll down a window and give it to this human. If I, if I claim to care and I know that I am going to encounter multiple humans every single day driving around Los Angeles, why can't I, Mm -hmm. yeah, why can't I add this to my to-do list while I'm at the grocery store, get a little basket and fill it with some supplies and be ready, be on standby and be prepared. So that's, that's what I did in that domain, but it also applies to something like unpacking your own internalized racism or homophobia. At a certain point, you have that moment where you're like, if I'm waiting for someone to do my own work, like it's clearly never going to happen because I'm clearly not making time for it. I'm just not. And that's when I say, when you talk about it being, sorry that I'm laughing, but you know, you're patient to even position it that way you know, wow, it's going to be super heavy for me to deal with. That's right, baby girl, Allison. That's why you have to teach yourself how to grow your capacity for discomfort. That means you are cordially invited to expand your mind and heart so that you have the stamina and endurance to deal with a fraction of what the person who's actually going through it is facing every day. So yes, I'm being a little bit tough because that's how I 
finally was kind of on myself. Like, if nothing's going to activate you, come on. Like, come on, you, you can do this. And when you get stuck, because we do, what do you tell yourself? It is hard. I, I heard you say in, in, in one of your videos that starting a company, self-funding it, and doing all that is hard. When it gets hard, what do you tell yourself to keep going? Well, se- several things, and maybe it's a little heady, but for me, I want to remember that what I am inherently doing is by nature difficult because I'm trying to introduce a new way of of doing business on top of just building the business. Like we have some values that are not the popular values. We're not driven by profit in the same way that other companies might be. So acknowledging that you, you are on a journey that is challenging. Now, when the next step feels too big, How can you keep splitting up that step until you have the micro mini version of it that you can do? And for me, if getting up and around in the morning and getting in the shower is too much, then I'll break that down and go, okay, I can't brush my teeth yet. I can't get in the shower, but maybe, maybe I can just get out of bed and stand there. That's what I can do. And so just breaking it down into the next step that isn't overwhelming and and doesn't feel unmanageable. Otherwise, for someone like me who's prone to anxiety, I will trip myself up over and over again and just spiral. And I will continue to resort to that sense of learned helplessness that I'll never know how to get myself out of this. I'll never be competent. I mean, I know it's uncomfortable, but make it the smallest step that you can do. And positively reinforce it. But you know, this is a comprehensive change. It's not just about what you're doing. It's about addressing if you're going to clean up your body, if you're going to clean up your your act, we got to clean up our minds as well. We got to clean up our spirits. Like you are a, a complex creature and being patient and compassionate and learning how to be on your side as you change and grow instead of criticizing yourself through it. We don't need another punisher (laughs) or we'll just start recreating the dynamic that we're trying to shift, right? Depending on your beliefs and what, what you're going for. But for me, I don't need another critic in my mind. I need someone who's like, all right, I know this is a lot. This is a lot. You don't have to do it all right now. So let's just start with, can you take a deep breath? Nope, not even that. Can you think about someday taking a deep breath? All right. Good job. Good job. Okay, you've done that. Now let's take the deep breath. As I listen to you, I'm struck by um, your vulnerability and your willingness to be vulnerable in front of, in this case, just me, but a conversation that will be heard by many. And as you do it through your writings and your your appearances on shows and and, and, in different spaces, does that vulnerability come easily to you? I think I was trained a bit to know how to disclose information that comes across as vulnerable without my heart necessarily feeling like it's wide open. I also know that once I've grappled with something long enough and I've settled into some kind of sentiment about it, I'm able to articulate it without it feeling so imposing and intrusive. And then the nature of being an artist, you know, you're kind, you, in many ways, People look to us 
to go through the catharsis that they themselves might be afraid to experience. So yeah, I think it's a part, part of the forces that shaped me. And also for me, when, if I'm going to say something publicly, it's usually because I have a larger dream of how that translates into action. And when you have a mission like that as an anchor, the bravery needed to come forward about certain things, for example, sexuality, I mean, it's like some other force makes it possible for you to move forward. If I didn't have that sense of mission or a sense of like, okay, there's a problem that I feel I was born to understand or solve, I don't know if I would be so bold. In my personal day-to-day life, I am, if you can believe it, very, very introverted, very withdrawn. I struggle to believe that. You would see if, if we met under different circumstances and this wasn't where I'm like here and ready to go, I might not open my mouth for a while. Uh, I might be quiet and I might just listen and observe and then go home and feel exhausted and need to recharge. But this is my lane, you know, for better or worse. Let's talk about reinvention as we bring this conversation to a close. If you start at six, spike at 11 and have expanded your world to take in so many more realms, would you say you're a creature of reinvention? (laughs) Well, mm, great question. Yes, but I I didn't feel that I was by choice. It felt by necessity. I felt that I reached the point where I couldn't go any further in that skin and I was going to have to do something about it. And interestingly enough, it was the portal to a different kind of internal liberation where now I, I actually feel I can, I can throw on a dress but I don't have to internalize that identity as the only thing I am. I might two years later be wearing a totally different dress um, or suit. (laughs) And so I think a lot of this deconstruction work has been an integral factor in the content that I make for others to really become reflective about the story that drives them, not just their own psyche and thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, but also all of the influences from family, from media, from maybe church or religious congregation, from government, politics, really getting curious about how those thoughts arrived in their brain. Where did they originate? How old do you feel when you think those thoughts about yourself? And when you can f- create a little distance to go, ah, story, humans and our love for making meaning out of things. Hmm, I wonder if we can flip the script. Maybe my story can change. That moment of opportunity is my favorite moment to offer and and curate for people so that they can realize, hey, I can actualize my fullest potential. And once I do it as that next person or version, I'm not going to be afraid to shed that and transform yet again. Are you happy in this new version? I, I get chills when you ask me that. I wake up with so much joy and so much peace that I have never known before this season of my life. 
and the circumstances haven't necessarily improved, but I feel grounded. I feel confident. Those are words that never characterized older versions. So I'm so full of gratitude and I'm, I'm so thankful that we're able to have this kind of conversation because it is not common to be asked these kinds of questions and with your humanity and, and what you offer in this. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Alison. And it was such a, such a joy speaking to you. And thank you for, for bringing us close to you and sharing your story and using that story to help us all get on the path to being better. So thank you. Yeah, y'all got this. <laughs> one day, one moment, one breath at a time. <laughs> Being vulnerable requires a tremendous amount of bravery. It doesn't come naturally to everyone, including me. In fact, I would go so far as to say I have probably perfected the art of wearing a mask to hide certain parts of myself from public view. So I am filled with deep admiration for Alison's work. Her radical vulnerability lies at the center of her activism. At first glance, you may think what she's doing is easy, perhaps even simplistic, but you'd be mistaken. This type of activism, like many others, requires quiet bravery and strength as she exposes her wounds in public and confronts the real possibility of being stigmatized and sidelined for sharing her story. All that she's doing is in the hope that the listener will feel something. Empathy. As an activist, if you can activate enough people to tap into that emotion all at once, then you'll find yourself with a movement on your hands, and those can move mountains. None of this work is easy, and it isn't going to be quick either, but you have to be okay with that. As Alison wisely said, you have to teach yourself how to grow your capacity for discomfort. That means you are cordially invited to expand your mind and heart so that you actually have the stamina and endurance to deal with a fraction of what the person who's actually going through it is facing every day. Simply put, get okay with not being okay while you do this work. I think those are words we'd all do well to remember while we're on this critical journey. Thank you so much for listening. Please take time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasay on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sasay. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production in partnership with Arella Productions. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sasay. Our producers are Brittany Martinez and Taylor Williamson. Until the next time, take care, everyone, and bye for now. <laughs>